Good afternoon. Welcome to the weekly edition of The Wrap. I'm Laura Leslie, WRAL Capital Bureau Chief. And I'm Travis Fain, one of WRAL's state government reporters. It's been a busy week here in Lake Wobegon. There's been a, a number of uh, big events happening. Number one, today, most most notably, um, we've been waiting for these decisions from the Supreme Court on a couple of major issues, redistricting and voter ID. Um, and they just came out this afternoon. Of course, this is we are coming up on the end of their term here. So, right. And yeah. we should clarify, because there's so many lawsuits in North Carolina, State Supreme Court is yes, what we're sorry, talking about State here. State Supreme Court. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so they're coming up on the end of their term. So they are, you know, the, the Democratic majority on the court, uh, the Dems are going to lose their majority. And so um, and so they're getting all their 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 uh, decisions out today. And so you went through and read the voter ID one. I read the voter ID one. Yeah, I mean, basically... First of all, this is one of three lawsuits impacting voter ID potentially in North Carolina. It's Holmes versus Moore, I think. Yeah, this one's Holmes versus Moore. And basically it says, all right, so in 2018, we all went to the polls. We added a voter ID amendment to the state constitution. Then Republicans came back into the session uh, that same year before they lost their supermajority. And they said, we're going to write like the more detailed rules for photo ID at the polls. That was Senate Bill, I think, 824. 824, there you go. So that is what, that bill is what this lawsuit, uh, Holmes v. Moore, is about. And today the state Supreme Court said, all right, that bill was passed with at least some intent to disenfranchise minority voters. Therefore, it is unconstitutional. But voter ID itself is not necessarily unconstitutional. So go try again, state legislature and write another bill to enforce that state constitutional amendment. And if you're like following along at home, like, well, what does this mean for me? It n- Nothing at the moment. It means you still don't have to show voter ID at the polls because we passed this thing four years ago. And we really... And it's been tied up in court ever since, pretty much. Um, and then also re- redistricting. So you might remember that um, when we had the, the redraw the maps earlier, I guess it was last year, um, end of last year and beginning yeah, of this year. Yeah, it was kind of overlapped the two years, basically. Right. So, um, so the state Supreme Court had found that the way what they had done, the, the partisan gerrymandering was unconstitutional and it sort of laid out what the requirements were. Um, and so they sent it back down to the three-judge panel, I guess, to decide whether or not the maps were going to be acceptable that were, that were sent in. The redrawn maps. The redrawn maps, right. And so um, that panel had accepted the House and Senate maps but uh, insisted on a redraw of the congressional map. Well, the high court today said, well, they should have had a redraw on this on the Senate map as well. So now that's going to have to be redrawn next year. Yeah. So I think of this th- this particular decision is kind of blessing the process, except for the state Senate map. So you're going to have to redraw the state Senate map uh, between now and the 2024 elections, which I think, you know, Senator Phil Berger, Republican leader in the House, in the Senate, excuse me, had indicated, as as other Republicans have indicated, they might try to redraw that map anyway. Possibly. They're looking at it. He thinks there's a way to read it. But now they totally can. They, at least right, with because, the Senate map. Right. right. Because the, the Constitution says they are forbidden from redrawing maps to sort of mid-decade, you know, when they're not in a census year, unless there's a court order. Right. And so now, the, now they have a court action for the yep. Senate and, and, and we'll see what that means for the House. And they were already going to redraw the congressional map. That was that was known. Right. Uh, that had been previously announced. And in fact, I believe the, the court decision in this case, is, as pertains to the congressional map, said it was a remedial one time map. So one election, we've had that election. We'll redraw it again for the next one. What a hash of all this is. And, and, yep. and the best part is it may all be largely irrelevant this time, six months from now, from more more Harper, because there is another court case at the U.S. US Supreme yes. Court that basically says 
the state Supreme Court should not be second-guessing the state legislature on any election laws as pertains to federal elections. Uh, so I don't know. Also happening this week, um, we uh, Allison Riggs, who, um, speaking of whom, uh, was, was key in a lot of these different lawsuits with her interposition with the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, uh, she was named to the State Court of Appeals by Governor Roy Cooper, uh, replacing, I think, Richard Dietz, who left the Court of Appeals and will be on the um, the state Supreme Court on January 1st. That's right. So a Republican moves up from the appeals court to the state Supreme Court. And because Roy Cooper knows how much Republicans like Allison Riggs, he has elevated <laughs> her from civil rights attorney best known for suing Republicans over election laws uh, to the state appeals court. I imagine this is not unexpected but also exasperating for Republican leaders. However, I mean, the court is the, the state court of appeals is like twelve out of fifteen Republican. Right, right. So it's not as though this is going to have um, a whole lot of, of you know huge impact. Probably, really, the, the the impact may be on well, who now prosecutes these cases, uh, these voting rights cases, because uh, Allison Riggs replaced Anita Earls, right. who, who who is on the state supreme court now and had been a longtime civil rights attorney. Uh, in this area in North Carolina. And then Riggs stepped in. And I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, it seemed like she did a great job uh, arguing her side. We, we didn't really see a fall off there. Uh, so, what, you know, what's the bench there uh, at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice and some of these other I mean, they've got a lot of good attorneys as I'm kind of thinking about it in my head. Uh, but yeah. And they like, I mean, for example, in the case in the Morvey Harper case, they had um, Neil Katyal, who's a you know, really well-known election law attorney. To, to argue DC. at the United yeah. States Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a network, of course, na nationwide on these things. Yeah. Um, also, let's see. So uh, we did a documentary this week about um, uh, basically hurricane damage that remains unfixed by the state's Rebuild NC program years after the years after those storms are done. Um, and that uh, that preceded um, a hearing on Wednesday. That would that aired Tuesday night. There was a hearing Wednesday um, looking at it was basically an oversight committee looking at disaster recovery, specifically Rebuild NC and the delays that we've seen in getting people their houses fixed or rebuilt or whatever it is that they need. Um, that was some meeting. Were you listening to it? I didn't listen to the meeting. I did watch the excellent documentary uh, by Kristen Severance here uh, in Jay Jennings here at WRAL, and which was based in large part and included interviews with Lisa Sorg from NC Policy Watch, who has been the reporter who has pushed this issue forward. I mean, it seems like the Cooper administration just has not gotten it done on these hurricanes. I mean, one was in 2016, one was in 2018. We have hundreds of millions of dollars from the federal government, which takes too long, by the way, to get. Yeah, they didn't get the money in a lot of these until 2020. Right. So. Right. There, there's something we can talk about maybe another time called pre-authorization, where, right. where where Congress needs to authorize these programs so that rules don't have to be rewritten every time this money is passed, taking months and months and months. You saw this with COVID money, too, right? Like where programs would be part of an emergency congressional bill. And then months later. The Treasury Department still hadn't finished the rules that they had to live by, so the money hadn't gone out. So that I, I'm not trying to go down a rabbit hole, but that does delay things. It is not the Cooper administration's fault. But it seems like a lot kind of didn't get figured yeah. out here. I mean, there is. I mean, I think it's worth noting that there was also um, a program in the Office of State Budget Management that was um, also helping some people who were sort of cases of last resort uh, with some with some money, and they managed to get their stuff done. Now, they were not operating on as large a scale as Rebuild NC. And they were looking at something like 4,000 applicants, I think. And out of those 4,000, about 3,000 of them are still in the pipeline at some point. 
But, um, you know, it is it is worth noting that despite labor shortages, despite supply chain issues, despite COVID, despite all the other things that Rebuild NC cited as reasons that they've been delayed, um, some other programs have managed to get things done. Yeah, Robinson County had a program that uh, eventually was kind of subsumed, I think, by the state, but that seemed to have good success. Uh, the question is, so so Laura Hogshead, uh, she runs this department. Right. Uh, lawmakers and others have called for her to resign. Uh, she has resisted that. The governor has supported her and said, "You look, we need improvement." But I mean, he's not made that move there. It, it, I I have been a little confused as why the Cooper administration has defended this process as much as it has. What they will often say is, "Look, you know, when the pandemic hit, the the construction crews essentially dried up. We were working with these large companies, and they were doing the construction, and then the labor shortage is just really." wreaked havoc on our ability to build these things. Well, and was pointed out today in the hearing by Hogshead, you know, they were also competing. And this, this is just about the time the housing boom really hit the triangle. And so basically they're competing for these contractors, for these laborers, with all these private projects that are paying higher rates than the government, right? So, I mean, you get stuck with who you can get. Yeah. And I am not clear on what the delta is between that problem and just bad management. I think it, it seems like both are both at are play, at, at play here. How wh- which one is which? Uh, you know, I is is a little hard for us to sit here and say. Anyway, so we covered that hearing. I've got a story on it online, um, and so you can read more about that. Um, it was uh, Senator, and watch the documentary too. It's, it was a good documentary. Senator Danny Brett um, calling on her to be resigned. He said, "If you'd be if in the private sector, you'd have been fired already." Um, and um, interestingly, Senator Brent Jackson saying if they don't get this money moving, they're going to lawmakers are going to take it away from them and give it to somebody else. Yeah, I, I, that may be a bit of an idle threat. I don't well, know how much of it is. Anyway, we'll see. Anyway, we'll, we'll see, see about that. We'll see. Um, so, okay, good news on the budget front. Oh yeah, one point two billion. I, this is an Associated Press story. I don't know if Gary Robertson wrote it or not, but we are again over collecting, uh, collecting more money in state taxes. Then we budgeted for 1.2 billion. I mean, at some point, maybe we need to review this process by which we're predicting how much money we're going to bring in because we well, keep bringing in way, way more. Okay, but I wonder to I wonder what to what extent that is a factor um, of inflation, because as prices go up, your taxes that you pay go up, right? Because you're paying a percentage of the prices. So I just I don't know, you know, if that's reflective of the inflation or or just inflict reflective of more growth than they expected to see. Because yeah. I think they had taken a fairly conservative estimate because I think there was concern when they were doing the budget, uh, you know, last time that there was going to be a recession. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, bottom line is this will feed Republican calls for further tax increases. Yes. I think, you know, Senator Berger made one of those calls just this week. Right. And I mean, look, we're already in halfway or or beyond through a phase down in uh, the corporate tax rate, the personal income tax rate. Uh, I wonder if they will accelerate that or if they will. The franchise tax that businesses pay, that has been something particularly on the state Senate side uh, that folks have wanted to uh, lower or get rid of. Uh, so you can expect, you know, certainly this to be fodder uh, in on that the, argument. I mean, on the other hand, though, there's also a huge need for state salary, state worker salary. Oh, yeah, big time. Because we hear about some like really um, drastic shortages at departments everywhere from the Department of Public Safety to DEQ. I mean, it's just DHHS. It's just, we're looking at you know vacancy rates of 30 to 50 percent. So a big part of that is pay, um, you know, and the fact that the state is just not keeping up 
with the private sector at all. It wasn't before and certainly isn't now post-pandemic with the job market being what it is. And so, you know, that's going to take, if they really intend to fix that, I have a feeling that's going to take some serious money. Yeah, that'll soak up money. And I would be shocked if that did not get addressed in some significant way. I mean, we'll see if it gets addressed in a way that state employees find adequate. Uh, but it just, it seems like, because it, we, we talk almost every year about the prison system having a problem recruiting. It It's Maybe not every state agency, but a lot of state agencies are struggling to, to, to keep enough employees on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so a big poll came out today. Um, not today. This week, I should say. Now, um, this is the differentiators. You might, you might remember um, Ray Martin and Jim Blaine used to work for um, Senator Berger, among others. Um, and they've opened up their own shop. This has been a couple of years back, at least. Uh, they decided to add polling because they wanted sort of a counterpart to public policy polling uh, more on the, I think on this the is part side. of their uh, attempt to absorb all aspects of Republican consulting in North Carolina. Yes, the world domination uh, tour. Anyway, so they put out this poll um, where they had a look at basically what voters thought about Trump. This is really interesting to me. So Trump, for, you know, Trump has been very popular in North Carolina. He still is. His favorability is up around 70 percent, right? But – when you ask voters, oh wait, I'm sorry, among Republicans or yeah, Republicans, yes, right, Republican Republicans. voters, yeah. and these are likely GOP primary voters. So these are the base base, right? This is your real base, folks. Um, his approval is still seventy percent, but they don't want him to run for president. Hmm. Again, fifty-two hmm. percent said they'd like to see somebody else run. Interesting. Yeah, it is, and so um, you know, and when they matched up against DeSantis, DeSantis won big time. It was like fifty-nine to thirty-four or something along those lines. So it was, it was substantial, you know, a really substantial difference there. And, um, you know, I talked to Jim Blaine about that today, and, you know, he thinks it has to do with, number one, the losses in the U.S. Senate races by the Trump-endorsed candidates that didn't turn out to be very good candidates. And number two, he thinks that there's a growing weariness with the fringe stuff. He said they, uh, excuse me, he said they surveyed the voters to see um, whether they agreed with or what they thought about Trump's uh, recent call to suspend the Constitution and rerun the 2020 election, and only 20 percent supported it. Oh, only 20 percent of likely Republican voters want to suspend the Constitution. I guess that's a good thing. It's better than 80, right? Right, yeah. It's better than some of the alternatives. <laughs> anyway, so um, he thinks that, you know, as he put it, they, they liked, they were willing to put up with that stuff when he was winning. Yeah, yeah. Taking an L or two but really crystallizes things. But when you stop winning, then they may not want to put up with the baggage anymore. So he thinks that's why support is really growing behind DeSantis. Also, interesting news for Mark Robinson. Yeah, he. Uh, no surprise, I think, probably to most listeners of this podcast, is extremely popular among Republican primary voters. Uh, but I mean, the shellacking he would put on people uh, in a head-to-head matchup for governor in 2024, based on this polling is brutal. I, I think Pat McCrory would get 21% against him, according to this poll. Dale Falwell, who we think is going to run against him, w- in this poll went down 60% to 6%. Yeah. It was 60 to 21 for McCrory, 60 to 6 for uh, um, Falwell, and Walker was somewhere in the, in the Mark similar Mark Walker, region. Former, yeah. former congressman Mark Walker. Yeah. yeah. So um, so anyway, you know, as, as, uh, as Blaine put it today, he, says he's, he spent the last two years winning the primary. Yeah, I, I think that's probably consistent with what you and I, our, our analysis would have been before this poll, right. too. Uh, I will note Jim has, has, has been very complimentary of uh, Mark Robinson and his fundraising in the past. 
Uh, so it, it, it's not surprising to hear him express that. But then again, it wouldn't be surprising to you or I either. Because again, this he said he was surprised by the level of support, though, like his approval ratings were just sky high. He said, I mean, it was approaching the Trump DeSantis level. And I mean, for somebody who's a lieutenant governor, who's a political newcomer, who's only really been on the scene for a couple of years. Right. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. And who most of the news coverage is. Maybe this helps him, doesn't hurt him, is Mark Robinson said the following outrageous thing. Uh, so I don't know if people like those outrageous things. Or if they just like that he's a maverick and he, you know, shoots from there. But I mean, I, I think it's important to remember. I still can't quite wrap my head around this. The last Mark Robinson outrageous thing story I read was he was talking about the attack on Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's husband on his personal Facebook page. And I, I what does that profit the lieutenant governor of North Carolina to be talking about a criminal attack on a political adversary? On his personal Facebook page, that 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 is a real lack of self control or something else that I don't understand. Situational awareness. At some <clears throat> point, doesn't that have to hurt your political chances? And if the answer is no, so be it. Well, Blaine said he thought he's going to be able to um, pivot. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, We've seen tons of evidence of that. Well, yeah, I'm going to say I thought that would happen after he won, too, but that right. didn't happen. So I'm not I'm not entirely sure that Blaine is correct on that one. But. Well, and, and look, it's worked for Mark Robinson so far. Yeah, it has. I mean, absolutely. It's working. You know, nothing succeeds like success, right? Uh, anyway, so um, you are gesturing at me. I would, that, that was a – we can probably wrap it up. But I, I, I will note uh, Brian Anderson has a story where, speaking of Trump – he reached out to every member of the North Carolina congressional delegation and for Democrats asked if they supported Biden for running for president. And, you know, they generally said yes. Uh, most Republicans, though, would not engage when he asked about Trump. Uh, they just either didn't respond or I think in Chuck Edwards case, uh, the Congressman Chuck Edwards, new Congressman Chuck Edwards out in the western part of the state uh, responded that he was, you know, not thinking about that yet. Uh, and then Richard Hudson uh, said, yeah, he would support Trump. So uh, not a lot of people wanting to answer that question if they're in elected office. Speaking of Mark Robinson, real quick, Colin Campbell reported this week he had seen a Facebook post, speaking of Facebook, from uh, the lieutenant governor's wife saying that he has obtained his degree from UNC Greensboro. Oh, good. So congratulations Congrats. for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's about all I've got. Oh, session-wise – they're going to tweak the rules a little bit so they don't have to do some of these perfunctory yeah, the clerk, sessions. the clerk can do it now. So they're going to do one more session December 29th. No Sunday night. The Senate didn't want to call their people back. They said they didn't want to have people try to make it back in the middle of the holiday season. I know that was a real disappointment to some folks in the House, especially with so many retiring senior members. I'm thinking about people like uh, Pat McElraft, Pat McElraft, sorry, and Hurley. And I mean, lots of lots of Billy Richardson, you know, they did right. not get the hanky drop, but um, but they did get two hours of farewell speeches. Yeah, the uh, House during met the session on Tuesday and yeah. there were some really good ones there. Yeah, that the House met on Tuesday and uh, just kind of said goodbye. A few people wore their purple. They're going home suits. It's so. just a lot of goodbyes. When you think about it, there's going to be like I think I heard like 28 or 29 new members. Wow. So, I mean, that's a chunk. And I mean, you know, Sp Speaker Tim Moore was. Frank and and saying, you know, I I really don't know what our Republican caucus is going to want to do or not do. I don't know what I don't, I don't know who these people are yet. So you know, this is just going to be a big change. Yeah, and I mean, there is a top down nature to leadership in in a le state legislature, but it ain't all top down. No, it's not all top down. The caucus does control what the caucus does. Okay. So, yeah, it'll be uh, fascinating to see that. He thinks that you know there may be some generational change that may benefit things like um, sports betting or medical marijuana, you know, or, you know, he doesn't know. Yep. 
We shall see. That's why we meet January 11th. I get started again. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we'll be taking a break next week, I think, because it's Christmas. Um, but we'll be coming to you after that. Yeah, and I will note on Christmas Eve, uh, I've got on the record our 7.30 p.m. Saturday Christmas Eve show. It'll feature uh, Governor Roy Cooper and I believe Don Davis, Congressman Don Davis, and State Representative Aaron Perret. I believe that's our, our lineup there. But I did the Cooper interview. That's in the can. You can watch us on Christmas Eve. Thanks so much. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.